0: Welcome to episode 62 of the GTO on 5G. It's the latest insight scoop on everything 5G. We cover six topics in about 15 minutes, and it's brought to you by more insights and strategy. I'm Will Townsend, and joining me again this week is federal analyst Anshul Sog. Let's get started. My first topic this week uh, is Rakuten, and they had several announcements that we're going to get into, but the first uh, was its intent to acquire open RAN player AltioStar. And my question is, is it a smart move? So on the surface, this is a $1 billion acquisition. And uh, obviously, it's going to give uh, ten you know, open RAN capabilities. But I'm curious if, if uh, this is the right way to, to spend dollars, you know, given many other, you know, operators around the globe are simply leveraging and licensing solutions from infrastructure providers. I mean, it's no secret that... Um, you know, spectrum costs are ballooning and uh, just, you know, the infrastructure costs, both hardware and software um, are ballooning as well. You know, Um, so, you know, I I really question, you know, whether this is, you know, a a good investment for them. And also it makes me wonder, um, will this limit Altio Star's uh, marketability with other operators as well, knowing after it closes, that Rakuten will, will own them. So what are your thoughts?
1: I think you're right in question in asking that question, but in my mind, the business strategy behind it makes sense in that um, if they plan on building out many networks for many operators, mm-hmm. um, or at least being the provider of choice through their symphony division um, which they created as well this week. Yeah. Um, you know, this might be a vehicle for them to save money as they continue to add customers to their list and justify the cost. That said, I think they do need to go out and acquire enough business to justify the billion dollar cost because um, they will have to justify it with, you know, at least a billion dollars worth of business.
0: Yeah. You know, and it also makes me wonder You know, if there's been no secret that they've had integration challenges. I mean, they've been the poster child for deploying, you know, a cloud-native, highly virtualized uh, network, and they have had integration issues. And so by acquiring LTO Star, maybe that, you know, over time eliminates some of those integration issues because... The co-development might be more tightly defined, but you're absolutely right. I mean, they're going to have to generate a ton of business, you know, to really justify that price tag. You mentioned Symphony. Um, they, had, they, had a, they had an analyst, you know, um, call this week. I believe you attended. I, I couldn't make it based on the timing. But there's also, uh, when you talk about the network build out, um, are you referring to the one, one-in-one 5G network that they referenced this week?
1: Well, I think that's one of them. But, um, you know, the one-on-one deal that they've signed, they didn't give details on um, in terms of financials. So we don't know how much of an impact that'll have on, uh, you know, the new Symphony division's financials. Uh, But I have a feeling that because they already have a a pretty, you know, this will be Germany's fourth operator, um, that this would very likely be a big reason for them to have gone out and acquired LTSR because it will be an open roundup deployment. And if they're going to go nationwide, that'll probably pay for a good chunk of their billion-dollar investment in Altio Star. Um, but they're going to need more customers to justify this expense. So um, yeah. I, I think you're right in, in asking that question. Um, but at the same time, there might be some integration challenge challenges that they could overcome by integrating a yeah. player like Altio Star.
0: Yeah, and I'll make a final point too. And I've mentioned this on prior podcasts. I mean, OpenRAN is cost optimized, not performance optimized. So, you know, um, you know, it it's not one size fits all from my perspective. There are going to be certain you know uh, workloads that are going to require a more performance optimized uh, radio access network. But time will tell. We'll uh, we'll keep our eyes and ears open on this one and report back as things develop. But let's move to your first topic this week. You want to talk about T-Mobile in some uh, 5G use cases around um, VR and XR. And I think you wrote an article on Forbes, right? About this.
1: Yeah. So it hasn't published yet, unfortunately. Um, But um, basically what's going on is T-Mobile is actually, they're not doing like proof of concepts anymore. Um, They're not talking about use cases. They're actually launching them. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is something that I find, it I think it's a big deal because a lot of, operators have talked about you know robotics and and XR VR as use cases for 5g right mm-hmm. but we've only seen pilots and we've seen you know tests and things like that but yeah. these are actually commercial deployments of VR and robotics uh, in the real world with real companies that are using it today mm-hmm. um, so the first the first company, um, is Sarcos Robotics, which is actually uh, a, a local company here. Uh, and they are um, they are doing some really interesting stuff because uh, they have lots of these like robots that work in factories. Um, and I believe the robot that they uh, uh, paired with T-Mobile's 5G network um, is going to allow them to remotely operate equipment um, and do things because a lot of their robot, a lot of the sarcos robots are your exoskeletons or have sh- human like capabilities with their robot arms. Mm-hmm. So initially it would be for viewing so like someone can re- remotely view what the robots doing, um, but eventually as they start to roll this out next year, um, they will actually be able to remotely control the robots as well. Um, and that will all be on T-Mobile's 5G network. And that 5G equipment will be, or 5G capabilities will be built into the robot. So it's not Mm -hmm. like they're just, you know, bolting something on. This is from the ground up. And if I remember correctly, I think Sarcos Robotics was one of the companies that was in T-Mobile's labs. Um, So I I think this is a really good um, example of these labs working for uh, Mm T-Mobile and helping them onboard new industrial customers. And then the other one. Um, is with a uh, historically black university called Fisk University. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they are leveraging VR for a cadaver lab for students. And what they're doing is they're uh, implementing 5G because they needed it. Not because this is a 5G use case, but because 4G and Wi-Fi simply didn't have enough bandwidth and, and weren't like, low latency for what they needed to, yeah. to be able to allow 20 um, you know, students to use a cadaver lab all at the same time. Um, and the reason why it's a it's an actual good use case is because cadavers are very expensive. They cost thousands of dollars and they're pretty much a one use kind of situation. So by having a virtual cadaver lab, you can include more students uh, and you can save money on, on cadavers and you can allow students who are not even in the classroom necessarily to potentially experience that. That said, this current deployment of this VR 5G use case is interesting because it's going to use a 5G hotspot to connect to T-Mobile's ultra wideband network. It's not a millimeter wave application, and it's not a special deployment of T-Mobile's network. It's using commercial T-Mobile network in Nashville, which is where Fisk University is located, and they're just going to use this hotspot for for the time being um, until 5G starts to get into VR headsets. Um, but I have I see I foresee this being used in the future. Where each student has a 5G enabled headset with a modem inside of it, and they could technically take this class or do this cadaver lab anywhere and not have to be in the room at the same place. So it's very interesting, lots of very compelling use cases. Um, these don't no longer sound pie in the sky, which I've I've been criticizing most carriers for in the past yeah. because they, you know, they talk about it, but they don't do it and now they're doing it and T Mobile no. just, you know, banged out two this week.
0: Yeah, you know, um, you're right, you know, lots of proof of concept, you know, labs, you know, across Verizon, you know, AT&T and T-Mobile. And I've spent time, you know, with, with all of those carriers in, in their labs. And what I'm impressed with, with T-Mobile, you know, we talked about on a prior podcast, this, uh, this remote vehicle, you know, piloting um, use case in Las Vegas that is, uh, that is in production. And now these VR XR um, use cases that are in production. So T-Mobile continues to, to extend its, you know, its 5G leadership uh, beyond just, you know, things like, you know, standalone and that sort of thing. And, you know, deploying out, you know, low band and mid band spectrum, but also in use cases as well. So, you know, and I expect Verizon and, you know, and at and AT&T will, will come along, you know, in, in, in good time, but, uh, yeah, continue to be impressed with uh, with T-Mobile's achievements there. Let's move to my second topic this week, and I want to talk about Huawei. And um, there was news this week that uh, the embattled uh, Chinese infrastructure provider um, is investing upwards of a hundred million dollars in the Asia Pacific region on um, incubating startups. And so, what you know, it wasn't really quite stated in the press release or any of the uh, the articles that I that I read online, but you know, could this be a diversification strategy on the heels of its re- recent earnings dip? And so um, the company did report about a 30% reduction in overall top line revenue, although profitability was was pretty stable. Obviously, that's coming out of their service provider business, you know, um, with, you know, 5G deployment and that sort of thing. Um, they re- They report that their consumer business is somewhat down just based on, you know the entity listing and and you know shortages and semiconductor and that sort of thing but that their enterprise networking group um, continues to grow but um, it was a relatively small part of the company you know relatively speaking you know only representing about you know less than 10 percent of the overall revenue but they see that as a growing opportunity so you know i do view this as a, p- a potential diversification strategy um, I'm not aware if they're taking equity positions uh, in these startups as they they fund them. Um, but certainly this allows you know, Huawei to stay in the game. And they also commented that um, you know, even given um, the, the block, you know, in a lot of markets, you know, with you know, within the service provider community, that they're continuing to attend events or continuing to, you know, promote their capabilities and with a focus on, you know, helping companies, you know, with their digital transformation journey. So what are your thoughts?
1: Um, You know, I find that money talks. Um, So when you go out and and invest in companies, um, you have some influence over them. um, And you also have some influence over what technologies get funded. So I, I think it's important to, understand that there are some benefits to Huawei being an investor um, and, and and investing in the right technologies, because um, ultimately being a, uh, a VC is something that a lot of American companies already do today. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of them do it to facilitate their own needs. So I could see Huawei wanting to invest in a lot of chip startups, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. To, to facilitate Um, APAC based uh, chip production, or maybe it's something around some other, you know, antenna technology. So I I think there's a lot of opportunities for Huawei there. um, And lots of other companies do it today. So I I think it makes sense for them to to maybe focus on APAC, because there's probably a lot less restrictions on APAC companies compared to US companies. So Yeah. um, yeah, I think that's probably kind of how I look at it.
0: Yeah, you know, and I think you make a very good point that, you know, I don't know what the profile is and the uh, the investment that they're making from a from a kind of a company perspective, but I imagine there's some semiconductor in the mix there to your point. So uh, excellent insight there, buddy. Um, let's move to your second topic this week. And I, I did catch the news that, uh, that Google's launching sort of a premium line of their Pixel phone, but they also announced a new system on chip, right, as they're moving away from Qualcomm. And you wanted to talk about that this week.
1: Yeah, so... <clears throat> On Monday, uh, Google kind of came out and announced that they would be launching the new Pixel 6 uh, later this fall, which is usually what they do. But they kind of gave a technical preview uh, in the sense that they are acknowledging the rumors that Google will be building its own SoC called the Tensors at Tensor chip. Um, it's an SoC. Um, we don't really know much about the details of the SoC other than it's AI focused, which is, you know, within Google's uh, realm of expertise. Uh, But what's interesting is there was no talk about 5G at all, uh, even though we know that most of Google's pixels are 5G enabled. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a very interesting thing that they chose not to talk about. Um, Mm -hmm. And we don't know who's gonna make this chip for them. uh, And we don't know what modem it'll have. Um, And that, those rumors um, have, kind of swirled around the fact that it might be a Samsung based solution mm-hmm. and that Samsung might be fabbing it for them and giving them the modem technology um, because it's unlikely that they would ditch a Qualcomm SOC and keep the modem. Um, yeah. They could go MediaTek, but if they go Samsung, they would also be able to you know, very easily fab that at Samsung. And it's possible, according to some rumors, that they are even just customizing an existing Exynos chip. So um, mm-hmm. it's likely that we'll see this chip in the, it's for sure we'll see it in the next pixel, um, yeah. but it'll be very interesting to see what kind of AI performance it'll have and how its 5G capabilities will stack up to the competition uh, as most com- com- competitive uh, the solutions use Qualcomm modems, including Apple. So uh, we'll see what happens there. Um, but it was uh, a big deal uh, for a lot of the industry. Uh, and we'll see kind of how that shakes out this fall when they, when they launch the new Pixel 6 and Pixel 6 Pro.
0: I, I find it interesting that, you know, they, they sort of put it out there and they didn't really provide a lot of details, right? So maybe this is the marketing team's, you know, sort of rolling thunder approach to kind of like what, you know, whet the market's appetite and then follow that up with details whenever they do, you know, officially launch, you know, these new devices, but it'll be interesting to kind of keep our eyes on it. So let's move to my third and final topic this week. And I had the opportunity to speak with the OnGo Alliance. This is formerly the CBRS Alliance, and they are responsible for driving the ecosystem around CBRS, that 3.5 gigahertz, um, you know, spectrum block. And um, it had been several months since I spoke with Dave Wright, you know, he's the lead there. Um, he recently left Comscope and his, uh, his day job to join HPE. So we congratulate Dave on that. He's, uh, he's still finding his way around after a couple of months, but we had a great conversation. We talked about you know, sort of all of the emerging use cases, no surprise, you know, the majority 50% plus are um, sort of factory automation you know, type solutions tied to private networking. He gave me an update. Um, they have almost 200 members now um, they've added um, three new master, com- you know, master communication providers. So these are like the federateds of the world um, that are helping sort of broker things and and, and you know and provision um, solutions and that sort of thing. Interestingly, uh, Nokia has become one of the the new of, of the eight there, and that's no surprise given their focus on private networking. We've talked about Nokia on prior podcasts as well, but it seems like you know he was telling me. The ecosystem is really maturing um they, they've gotten through all of the major hurdles and now uh, that now that they're past you know sort of the, these major milestones they're even um, creating opportunities for secondary market so um we talked also about the the types of companies that that purchased you know spectrum uh these are 10-year licenses and it gives these folks, the ability if they're not using, you know, if they buy spectrum for a certain geographic area and it's not going to be used in a certain part, that that can be, you know, released. And, and so they're allowing with guidelines these, these eight, you know, um, you know, sort of major what they call master service providers um, to kind of manage the, the secondary market. So it seems like it's shooting on all cylinders. One of the reasons why they rebranded from CBRS Alliance to Ongo. Was that they're also helping to facilitate the model that's been successful in the U.S. on a global basis, and it's no secret that you know, you know, company, you know, countries like Germany and Europe and other parts of the world are sort of getting ahead of um, you know this type of scenario and you know trying to figure out you know sort of how to manage the spectrum without all of the bureaucracy that's associated with having to manage it through a governmental entity. So. All in all, it was a great conversation. I mean, I don't know if you have any insight there or if you follow the OnGo Alliance, but I thought I'd ask your opinion.
1: I do not follow OnGo remotely as closely as you do. However, I did see that Federated is deploying some CBRS spectrum in commercial 5G applications already. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, you know, things are moving along quickly. So um, this does sound like a very promising um, opportunity for private five G enterprises um, to have a very unique um, industrial specific yeah. version of five G that doesn't necessarily cost remotely as much uh, in terms of spectrum uh, as something else would nationwide or with a uh, you know a bigger swath of spectrum. So it, yeah. it'll be very interesting to see how this pans out over time.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure, and. Absolutely. I mean, you hit the nail um, on the head, it, you know, CBRS is on go is definitely optimized for, you know, for private networking deployment, you know? So, um, so yeah, so it's, you know, I've, I've always stated that, you know, I really believe that they've done a tremendous uh, amount of good and democratizing access to licensed spectrum. When you look at some of the, um, the, you know, the, the profiles of the entities that, that purchase spectrum, um, you know, it, it's all over. It's all over. It's, you know, you've got school districts, you have um, healthcare care system providers, you have um, just a, a number of, you know, very unique, you know, different, you know, types of entities that have never had access to license spectrum. So um, it's definitely very powerful. And uh, as things develop, we'll, uh, we'll report back. But let's move to your third and final topic this week and you want to get sort of an update internationally on 5g uh, deployment
1: yeah so this 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 international update is focused on uh, apac specifically uh the two biggest and most most i don't know leading uh 5g deployments so uh the chinese government has a an entity that kind of gives updates on what's going on in China in terms of 5G. And they have announced that they've, the Chinese operators have deployed 961,000 5G base stations. Wow. And that there are nine, 365 million 5G connected devices in China, um, which are both staggering numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, the 360 million number is quite large. Um, and uh, a- according to the Chinese government represents 80% of all global 5G connections. Um, which clearly puts China in the lead in terms of, you know, 5G deployments. Um, But that said, China also does have uh, 1.6 billion uh, mobile users. Uh, So they are only at 22.8% of penetration um, in terms of 5G users versus the the entire uh, install base, which Mm -hmm. actually matches South Korea's new 16.48 million 5G subscribers, which is 23%. So interestingly enough, both Korea and China are roughly at the same uh, 5G penetration rate, um, which is pretty good when you consider that uh, we are two years in and we're almost at 25% penetration. So yeah. um, it's it's very promising and I expect things to continue to ramp, uh, especially as Verizon uh, and AT&T roll out their C-band and T-Mobile continues roll out their C-band, I would expect that the US will not be far behind uh, next year.
0: I would agree with that statement. I mean, I, we talked about AT&T on a prior podcast and what was that number again? They, they claim that they um, have reached, was it 150 million subscribers or was it 250?
1: Oh, oh they're pops. Yeah, they're so pop. the pops. I think they're 250 million pops 250 in T-Mobile. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. obviously not customers, but that's potential right. customers. So we'll, exactly. we'll see how that, that pans out with CBAN. I think there will be a lot more opportunity to, to get more people to transition.
0: I agree. And I'm not surprised to see South Korea up there as well, right? We've talked about how they've been a role leader yeah. in deploying 5G and um, SK Telecom in particular impresses me with, uh, with use case deployment as well, just like T-Mobile that we spoke about earlier. But hey, buddy, another great podcast. Why don't you take us home?
1: Absolutely. We hope our viewers and listeners found this week's topics interesting. If anyone out there would like to provide insight on a specific 5G topic for a future podcast, please reach out to us on social media. Will is at Whale Town Tech and I'm at On Shell Sog. We hope you have a great weekend and please tune in again next week.